Good afternoon and good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Laura Albast with the Institute for Palestine Studies, otherwise known as IPS. Thank you so much for taking the time to attend this webinar, hosted in collaboration with the Center for Palestine Studies at SOAS, University of London. We are thrilled to have Rashid Khalidi and Rajesh Hade with us to discuss the Hundred Years' War on Palestine, Dr. Khalidi's most recent book, published in January of this year. Dr. Rashid Khalidi is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University and the co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies at IPS. He is the author of 11 books, including Palestinian Identity, The Iron Cage, and Resurrecting Empire, as well as dozens of scholarly articles on Middle East history and politics. Rajesh Hadim is a leading Palestinian lawyer and the founder of Al-Haq, a pioneering human rights organization in Palestine. He's also the author of eight books, including Strangers in the House, Occupation Diaries, and A Rift in Time. In, in Time. His most recent book, Going Home, was published in August of 2019. This talk is being live streamed on the IPS Facebook page. If you wish, you can share this live stream with your colleagues, friends, and family. A recording of this webinar will be available on our social media. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Pal Studies and Instagram at Palestine Studies. Attendees can also submit questions via the option provided at the bottom of the screen throughout the discussion. And this is only for Zoom attendees. We will select a few of these questions for a brief Q&A at the end. Mr. Shahadi, Dr. Khalidi, the virtual floor is yours. Thank you very much. I would like to start by congratulating Dr. Rashid Khaldi for writing a brilliant book. There have been many books written on Palestine and I've read quite a few. So that when I received the Rashid's book from the publisher, I thought, what more can be said that I don't know? But I must say that I've learned a lot from your book and found it very readable, informative, and a superb mix of academic and the, and, the, and the personal. So congratulations, your book deserves all the good attention and praise it has received. I urge the viewers to buy the book and read it and you will not be dissatisfied. I would like to start with the obvious question, which is what, how did you get the idea of writing a personal book or at least a book with personal vignettes? And uh, why didn't you do it earlier? But it, it, it seems like a very good idea that you could have done earlier. Why didn't you do it earlier? Yeah, that's a really good question, Raja. And thank you for your kind words about the book. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed deserved. it. Absolutely deserved. Thank you. Um, there's, a, there's a reason why I didn't do it earlier, which is the training that I received as a, as a student, as a graduate student, as, and as an, a young academic, which is that you're supposed to take yourself out of the story. Um, and I wrote a number of books that are, you know, monographs uh, that uh, fit that standard academic uh, pattern, uh, where you, you try and take an objective stance and you don't include yourself in the story. In, the, in a couple of the most recent of those, though, I realized I was relating events that I myself had witnessed and where my involvement actually might have been helpful to the reader. Um, but what pushed me over the brink into doing this and in using uh, much more personal material in this book was my son, uh, Smail, who said, you know, it, enough already with the academic books that are intended only for specialists. It's time for you to write entirely for a general reader. It, you can put all the footnotes you want in. It has 45 pages of footnotes, the book, but write it in a way that ordinary people can understand it and bring yourself into the story. And I thought about that for a while. And I, you know, I, uh, we're, I'm now at the stage of my life where instead of I'm teaching my children, I'm learning from my children, all of them. And uh, so I listened to him and to other people. I had a couple of cousins who told me the same thing. And so finally I just said, okay, let me try and do this. And uh, that's what brought me to do it. Well, they gave good advice. I hope so. My, my second query is you framed the book around the settler colonial framework. Can you first of all elaborate on this and then right. comment on whether you would have been able to publish such a book with a commercial publisher using this framework just a few years back? 
Well, the answer to the second question is no. Things have changed. Um, the number of books being published on Palestine uh, is astounding compared to the fact that there were almost none when I was a student. No, but when my, I was a my interest is with, with such a framework. Not, yes, not... Uh, but I, I, I'm making I'm making a general point. Okay. There is a knowledge of there is a knowledge and a and a sense of understanding about Palestine such that the use of such a framework became possible, uh, mm -hmm. where it probably wouldn't have been 30 or 20 or maybe even 10, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, now, why I used it in the way I used it is because it's something that's always been it's always been part of my understanding of this conflict. Um, but I, as I was thinking of how I would frame a, 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 a different understanding, a different narrative of the history of Palestine, I realized that this had to be the, the, the main frame because uh, we understand, Palestinians understand it, anybody who really has looked closely at the conflict understands this as a very one-sided conflict, understands this as one in which external powers together with the Zionist movement and then later with the state of Israel have been on the a constant offensive against the Palestinians. And I happened to be reading a lot of history of the Hundred Years' War between England and France, and that gave me the idea, this is a Hundred Years' War. Uh, and settler colonialism seemed to me not only to be a true rendering of, of the way in which this conflict has unfolded, but also an appropriate way uh, to explain this Hundred Years' War. So um, what I'm arguing here is that this is not a tragic conflict between two peoples uh, over the same land or one in which involves right versus right, or even worse, which involves uh, poor little Israel beleaguered by masses of, of, of raging, insane, anti-Semitic Arabs. Rather, it's been a war uh, by a settler colonial movement supported powerfully from the outside to displace a people from its homeland and to replace it with another people. And I also argue that in that process, as has happened in other cases of settler colonialism, uh, the settlers have become a, a, a people. There is a, there is a nation there, just as there is in Canada, in the United States, in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, these are settler colonial projects that have been successful, much more successful than Zionism, uh, but which have in the process of replacing one people, as it were, with another, created a new national entity. This is what the United States is. It's a settler colonial project, but it's also a nation state. Um, and so uh, I, I'm using a settler colonial framework, but I'm arguing that it's very different than any other, uh, just as, in fact, each settler colonial uh, uh, case is, is, is unique and, and specific in, 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 in a variety of ways. Well, today we're, the 15th of May is Palestine's Nakba Day, which we've been commemorating since 1948, for 72 years now. What does this mean to you as the author of the Hundred Years' War on Palestine? Well, one of the points that I make in the book is that this war has been going on a lot longer than 72 years. 72 years marks an important turning point. The Nakba was a really important turning point in this conflict. It marked the ethnic cleansing of Palestine and the replacement of a large Arab majority with a, a, a Jewish majority in most of Palestine. Uh, that, that Jewish majority has eroded since, uh, since the occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in East Jerusalem. But um, that's what the Nakba marks. It marks the, the success of a process of expropriation and, and uh, ethnic cleansing uh, which, in fact, as I, as I suggest, has been going on for much more than 72 years. So it's a, this is a really important landmark um, in Palestinian history. But the, the, the frame of 100 years uh, indicates uh, that, in fact, this has been going on for much longer than just since 1948. Uh, the book, in fact, starts uh, with a letter uh, sent by Yusuf al-Khaldi, a great, great, great uncle of mine, to Theodore Herzl, the founder of modern political Zionism, in which he is already in 1899, which is to say 121 years ago, warning against what Herzl and the Zionist movement are already planning for Palestine. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting letter that you had quoted. I would like to say that for me, living in, in Ramallah in Palestine and having the refugee camps around me, uh, uh, I feel that every day I live the consequences of the Nakbe. 
And I see evidence of the Nakba continuing with the building of settlements that surround us uh, from all sides. Uh, and uh, the Nakba is also continuing with the attempts at pushing out the Palestinians through strict residency rules. When the settlement project began, I and others could not imagine that Israel would be able to get away with it and uh, change the landscape in the way and to the extent that it has. I imagine that for uh, people in, in Palestine in 48, they, they also couldn't imagine that uh, the, uh, the uh, Jews would be able to push the Palestinians out and, and that it would be a permanent uh, exile for them. Uh, I also think that uh, there is a disparity in the experience between the two sides. Uh, among those who were involved in the massive destruction of Palestinian villages were soldiers who had come from the Nazi camps, where they were brutalized by the experience of the Holocaust. Would I'd like to see whether you would agree that there is that this experiential divide between the two sides made the Palestinians more susceptible to the psychological warfare that was waged against them and that played a significant role in what took place. Would you agree about that? Yeah, I'd have to, I, I, I thought about this question um, when, you, when you sent it to me first. Um, I think I do agree, um, but I think that I would give historical as well as experiential uh, uh, explanations for the success of the psychological campaign uh, in 1948 uh, against the Palestinians, which, which helped to drive the expulsion of, of three more than three quarters of a million people from their homes. Uh, and I would, I would uh, cite the sledgehammer blows to Palestinian society, the Palestinian economy, the Palestinian political structure that were delivered by Zionism's British patron in the 1930s. Um, Palestinian society had been systematically divided and turned against itself by the manipulations of the British. And when the Palestinians rose up in a great revolt, 1936-39, the British uh, responded with massive overwhelming force. There were 100,000 British soldiers and police brought to Palestine at a time when there were only three or 400,000 adult males and uh, Arabs in Palestine. So that was one soldier to every three or four adult males. Enormously, enormously massive repression was employed. Um, all of the methods that Israel has employed since then, uh, the, murder of, the, the murder of captives, the, the assassinations, the blowing up of homes, all of these tactics the British used on a massive scale. 10% uh, 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 of the adult male population of Palestine was killed, wounded, uh, exiled, or imprisoned by the British uh, during the revolt. Uh, I would suggest that those sledgehammer blows, the removal of so much of the leadership by, by assassination or, or exile and so forth are really important reasons why the campaigns that were waged by the Haganah and its sister Zionist militias uh, were so successful in the spring, especially of, of 1948. Uh, Palestinian society had already been partially dislocated by the blows delivered by the British. Uh, and so at that point, I think the experiential uh, gap that you talk about uh, comes into play. Um, let me just uh, say something about what you started with, which is the suggestion that Palestinians couldn't possibly foresee what was coming. I think you're basically right. Couldn't imagine. Couldn't imagine uh, what, yeah, was, yeah. What, was, what was to come. Um, and, and, and you cite your own experience, and I, I have the same experience. I mean, I li was living in Jerusalem in the 90s and, and seeing early 90s and seeing the, the, the progress of the settlement of the settler colonial endeavor all around Jerusalem. But I couldn't foresee that they would achieve some of the things they've achieved. Nevertheless, what I wanted to say was, as I cite again and again in the book, there were many Palestinians who saw what was coming. Uh, uh, Isa Isa writes about, uh, uses, the, uses a headline, strangers in our own land. He foresees in the 20s that Palestinians would, be, would, would come to see themselves as strangers in their own land. So there were people who, if they didn't entirely foresee the details, uh, could see that something quite terrible was coming at them with great speed. Absolutely, yeah. 
Well, uh, one of the special attributes of your book is bringing in personal vignettes in the narrative. Early on in the book, you describe about your father when he, when you were 19 and he invites you to the dining room in, in your uh, house and tells you about the message that his father tried to give him. Uh, his, to, his brother. His brother, sorry, his brother tried to give him to, to send, to, uh, uh, to deliver to, to King Abdullah. Now the message was that, thank you for the offer. We appreciate the offer for the protection that you are but we cannot accept it. And, and that's because we want to rule our own, our, our, we want to control our own fate and be under, we don't want to be under the rule of Jordan. So thank you, but no thank you. Now, exactly. Abdullah's response was, you Palestinians have refused my offer. You deserve what, happen, what happens to you. What I'm wondering about is, can you first of all elaborate on the context and the background in which this message was delivered? and comment on what Abdullah meant by, you deserve what happens to you. At that time, what was he thinking was going to happen to the Palestinians? Right. And also, to what extent does this retort demonstrate the attitude of some of the Arab leaders to the Palestinian self-determination and more recently to the Trump plan and the proposed annexation of the parts of the West Bank? That, that's a portmanteau question, Raja, which extends yeah, from 1947 to, to, to 2020. I'll try and yeah, answer it. It comes down to the same thing. Okay. I'll try and answer it. I'll try and answer it. Uh, first of all, the context. Um, in 1947, my father was going to visit then Amir Abdullah in Amman from Jerusalem. And uh, his older brother, uh, Dr. Hussein Fakhri Khaldi, who was the, the Amin Siv, the secretary of the Arab Higher Committee, uh, said, would you please pass this message to Amir Abdullah? We've been trying to tell him this for a long time. He doesn't believe it. If the message is carried by you, my young, younger brother, he might listen. So my father, uh, unwillingly, because it ruined his mission, his mission was, was to get the king's support for something in the United States. He unwillingly took this message to the king. And at the end of his spiel about the Arab Institute in the United States that they were forming at that time, he told the king, uh, my brother says, we're very thankful for your offer of wasaya, protection or overlordship, um, but we are unable to accept. And exactly as you said, what this involved was something that I'm sure neither Dr. Hussein nor my father fully knew about, but King Abdullah had been in negotiations with both the British and the Zionists preceding the delivery of this message. This was November, 1947. He had been talking to Moshe Sharet and Golda Meir about how they would arrange things in Palestine. So there was an understanding between the Jewish agency represented by Sharet, who was the head of it, and Meir, uh, both later prime ministers of Israel, uh, and Amir Abdullah. And part of the understanding was that Abdullah would bring the Palestinians under his control and take over the parts of Palestine that were supposed to go to the Arabs. And what uh, uh, the Arab higher committee and my uncle Dr. Hussein were saying to the king was, we have been under foreign control for too long. You are, a, they didn't say this, but they meant you are a tool of the British. We do not under any circumstances accept the idea that we come under Jordan, whose army is commanded by British officers, whose budget is paid by the British, which is armed by the British. The British ambassador goes through the back garden between the British embassy and your palace and tells you what to do. We've been under British control since 1917. We want to be independent. I mean, this was what the Palestinians wanted. They wanted self-determination as a majority in their own country. They did not want to be under King Abdullah. The king's response in Arabic was, This is what my father told me, he said. This is what my father says. The king said this to me. You Palestinians have refused my offer. You deserve what will happen to you. What does this represent? It represents exactly as your question suggests the view of some Arab governments, not all of them, but some, certainly the government of Jordan at the time, that the Palestinians did not deserve self-determination. That the Palestinians should come under, in this case, King Abdullah's authority and accept to be ruled by him uh, as part of a deal that he was making with his British masters and with his Zionist neighbors uh, at the time. Uh, so that's the importance of this incident. And, and why is it important? Why do I include it? in the book, because as, as your question suggests, 
it's part of a chain going back to Herzl and Balfour, going back to the 1937 Peel Partition Plan, going back to the Partition Plan of 1947, which by the way, is announced in the palace when my father is there with the king right after the king gets up and, and delivers this angry response to my father. Someone comes in and said, yeah, Maulana, the General Assembly of the United Nations has just uh, voted for the partition of Palestine. It's at that point that the king turns to my father and says this, you Palestinians have refused my, my offer. You deserve what will happen uh, to you. So it represents a continuing strain, continuing strand, I should say, uh, by great powers, the United States, Britain first, the United States, and the Zionist movement in Israel from the very beginning until now, and including Trump at this moment, who basically argue you are less than a people. You do not deserve what the United Nations Charter uh, 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 indicates is the absolute right of every people, which is self-determination, sovereignty, and independence. You are lesser people. You deserve less than everybody else. That's what the Trump plan is. It's basically acceptance of Israel, Israeli sovereignty and control uh, uh, over the entirety of, of historic Palestine. It's a wonderful vignette, and uh, it's wonderful that you use it, and you use it very well in the book. Yeah. Well, Daniel Berenboim was speaking in the course of the Reith Lectures to an Israeli public in the West Jerusalem-wide MCA. And he told his audience, your dependence on the USA is uh, dangerous because are you not aware, he said, that there is no Jewish lobby in China? Now you write that your purpose has been to show that the conflict must be seen quite differently from the prevailing view of it. And you succeed and write very cogently in the book about the settler colonial nature of the Israeli state and the absence of a mother country. I wonder whether you can comment on the effect this will have on the future of Israel in this changing world. Yeah. One of the reasons that the settler colonial frame is so useful is that it explains the dependence of the Zionist movement and later of the state of Israel on external patrons. Mm -hmm. But Zionism was unlike every other settler colonial movement. It did not emanate from a single mother country. The, the, the settlers were not French people coming from France to make Algeria part of France. They were not uh, English settlers coming to Kenya or coming uh, to North America or Australia to make those lands part of the crown domains of Britain. They represented an independent, separate, nascent national movement, which had to find external patrons. I mean, French settlers in Algeria had the French mother country behind them. They had a single mother country. Uh, British settlers in East Africa similarly had Britain as their mother country. Uh, Zionism doesn't have a mother country in that sense. It has external patrons. It could not have done what it did without external patrons. Herzl uh, went around the chancelleries of Europe trying to find that external support. Weizmann found that support in Britain. Much later, Ben-Gurion found that support in the United States and the Soviet Union for the partition plan, which was passed essentially through, by being rammed through by the Americans and the Soviets in the General Assembly in 1947. And ever since then, Israel has depended on that external support. But it has operated in an, in a, in an entirely unique manner in leaping from iceberg to iceberg as it was, as it were, mm -hmm. from Britain uh, later on to the United States and the Soviet Union in 1947, uh, to Britain and France to support its war on Egypt in 1956 and to arm it for the 1967 war. Israel wins the 1967 war with British and French weapons, not with American weapons. Uh, and then later on to the United States. Now, today, uh, the Baron Boyne comment brings up something that's really quite interesting. Uh, I think there's an awareness in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem on the part of Israeli leaders that this base, this American European base of theirs, without which Israel cannot possibly prevail, which is an essential precondition for its dominance of the region and for its survival in the fashion in which it survived. This base is in some ways shaky. So far, minor ways, but ways that are quite concerning to them, which is why they are trying to develop alternative uh, alternatives, whether it's developing their relationship with Russia, whether it's developing their relationship with Modi's India, whether it's their uh, very close commercial connection and military and security connection with China, 
whether it's trying to develop uh, contacts in Eastern Europe, formerly communist countries of Eastern Europe, or whether it's Brazil or other parts uh, of the world. Uh, Israel understands, Israeli leaders understand that they are dependent in certain key ways on the outside. It's a nuclear superpower. It's a very strong country in many respects, but it is ultimately a, a settler colonial project that's dependent on external support to operate as it operates. If it integrated into the Middle East, if it operated on a basis of equality with all citizens and all Palestinians, then they, they wouldn't need that external support. But in order to maintain the system that they have, to maintain the exclusionary, discriminatory uh, domination over another people, and the argument that they have made, and it's perfectly clear in this 2018 nation state law, that there's only one people in Palestine with a right of self-determination, or rather, as they put it, in the land of Israel, and that is the Jewish people. To maintain that, they need external support. And they realize that that external support is beginning to be a little bit shaky in the United States and Europe, because that kind of argument is something that does not comport with liberal democracy, which is why they're searching uh, for other external support. Well, support is one thing, but the way the United States gives support to Israel is on a different level. Absolutely. And they cannot emulate that. They cannot find Absolutely. any sponsor on the Absolutely. same level. The United States is still the sole superpower. Yeah. Well, uh, to get to another uh, issue, at one point in this book, you wonder, and I quote, how to wean Israelis from their attachment to inequality often coded and justified by a need for security. Then you propose that, and I quote again, the syndrome that drives this imperative to dominate and discriminate can probably only be addressed by those within Israeli society who understand the grim direction of the country's current course and who can challenge the distortions of history, ethics, and Judaism that this ideology constitutes. Right. The question is, how much evidence of this can you see in Israel today? I mean, and, I can give and, you a short answer or a long answer. An adequate answer. Well, the short answer is very little evidence. Um, I, I, there are people, obviously, in Israel. There are organizations in Israel. Uh, there are uh, 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 intelligent people in Israel who see exactly what I'm seeing and what most of us can see. Uh, that This is ultimately not sustainable that you cannot subjugate a people in this way. Had Zionism arisen, I say this in another place in the book, in the 18th or 19th century, maybe they could have gotten away with it. They had completely eliminated the indigenous population, the Palestinians, the way, it, or, or largely eliminated it, the way in which uh, the British did in Australia or, 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 or much of North America, you might have had a different outcome. But in the 21st century, it's almost impossible to conceive of that. So we are now a majority in historic Palestine, even though they expelled uh, over half the Palestinian population in 1948. And they have to, uh, they therefore have an almost impossible, they have to square a circle in other words. How do you maintain this unequal discriminatory reality in the 21st century? Uh, so many Israelis I think are, per, are fully aware of it. On the, on the other hand, they're, very, they're a minority, they're a tiny minority, and the ones who realize it, many of them leave. I mean, the United States is full of Israelis who are completely, completely cognizant of how outrageous what Zionism and Israel are trying to do is. And that's why they're living in Los Angeles and New York, by the hundreds of thousands. Uh, now, they, 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 they haven't necessarily left Israel for good, but they don't want their children to serve in the army of occupation, and they don't want to be part of that anymore. So there is a group of, there's a large group of such people, but they are a, a tiny minority in the overall scheme of things. I think that to get to the point where Israelis realize that they cannot live this way requires a number of things. One of them is a change in the United States, because as you said in, in, in what you said just a minute ago, Raja, uh, the support that the United States gives to Israel is unparalleled. And it's actually precarious in certain ways. Uh, the idea of giving $4 billion a year to Israel, which is just about to be passed by the Senate, if I'm not mistaken, in, 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 its, in, its, in its meetings in the next week or two, uh, in a situation where the United States has 36 million people without jobs, is something that sooner or later is going to be brought into question. The, uh, the idea behind the nation state law that there is only one people in Palestine goes squarely against what most Americans now think, which is that there is a Palestinian people and they have some kind of rights 
And this, this, this contradicts that completely. So how do you get to that? One way is through, through the United States and Europe. The second way is something that Palestinians have not done a very good job of, I think, which is to put forward a vision of a decolonized future. What would it look like for Israelis to give up their control over everything? They control our population register. They control water underground. They control the air airspace. They control imports, exports, entry, exit, everything. All through, through the entirety of historic Palestine is controlled by the Israeli state. The Palestinians have no control over any decision of any importance to their future, none whatsoever. The Sulta, the so-called Palestinian Authority, has minimal, minimal jurisdiction over minor issues and nothing else. Israel controls everything. To give that up is going to require not just a, a, a weakening of American support. It's going to require also the Palestinians putting forward a vision of what a decolonized future could look like or would look like. However, we decide, we as Palestinians decide to put that forward, we have, we sooner or later have to do that, not for the Israelis, for ourselves. And it's something that I think we've, we've not done very clearly. Back in the 60s and 70s, there was some thinking about this, whether it was a, a single democratic state where everybody, Jews and Muslims and Christians would live on an equal basis, or whether it was a, the later two-state solution idea, there was some thinking about it. There hasn't been much recently. Uh, and since the failure of the Oslo process in 19, st starting in 1993, it was a failure from the moment it was signed, as you and I both know very well. Um, there hasn't been fresh thinking on this. And, and it's up to the Palestinians. Uh, the Israelis are fine. They don't care. They're benefiting from the status quo. We're the ones suffering from the status quo. So we're going to have to come up with a, 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 a solution, not just a solution, but ideas about how to wean Israelis from their addiction to superiority, to, from their addiction to domination, from their addiction to the kind of sadistic uh, 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 pressure that they're constantly putting on the Palestinian people, uh, to, from this desire of theirs, which is shown in the thing you mentioned, their constant attempt to force people out in a variety of ways. This desire to reduce the, democratic, the demographic advantage that the Palestinians have re-won uh, in the decades since 1967. All of these things have to be changed and, and, and they, have, they are gonna have to change. But they're not succeeding in this. Pardon me? They're not succeeding in, in pushing, pushing out. No, they're not, they're not. There is, a, there is an Arab majority in historic Palestine today. We know that, they know that. And then you also write that Palestinians also need weaning, that the Jewish Israelis are not a real people. Right. How much evidence of that do you see in Palestine today? I think the evidence is, is pretty limited. Um, I think that uh, the people who understand it the best are our Palestinian, uh, are our Palestinian brothers and sisters inside, uh, who live inside Israel. Uh, the couple of million of Palestinians who are citizens of the state of Israel, who were born and grew up, most of them, under, under the, the, the rule of, of the state of Israel, uh, understand perfectly well what has been created in Palestine uh, by the Zionist movement. They understand perfectly well its strengths, its weaknesses, and the fact that this is a reality. Uh, it, 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 it's a reality that will have to change for there to be a, a solution of the conflict, but they understand that. Uh, with that exception, uh, I don't think that I don't think that most Palestinians living under occupation have had the opportunity. Uh, maybe your generation, people who saw Israel in the in the period after '67, before the the walls came up, and the and the and the and the barriers came up, and the checkpoints came up, and most Palestinians didn't have an opportunity to meet Israelis except men and women with guns at checkpoints. Um, most Palestinians in the occupied territories, and I think most Palestinians living in in the diaspora, people in the United States, people in Jordan, people in Europe, uh, Syria, and so on. I don't think they fully realized uh, the extent to which uh, this is a settler colonial project that has produced a, a nation, a people, however you want to put it. Uh, so there's a lot of work, I think, to do in that direction. Uh, least of all among Palestinians inside Israel, they understand it perfectly, I think most of them perfectly well. But there are only two million of the eight or ten or twelve or whatever, or ten or twelve million Palestinians. Yeah. Well, let's move to the chapter on the Washington negotiations, which we were both involved in mm -hmm. in the talks. And uh, uh, 
and talk about the obstacles to the success of the Pisga, the Palestine Interim Self-Governing Authority, which you and I were involved in drafting. Right. You that there were many reasons for Pisca's failure. The main one, you say, being the doctrine that was at the root of the Palestinians' displacement, the Zionist doctrine of the exclusive Jewish right to the entirety of Palestine. Then you right. write, and I quote, Tunis formed another obstacle. And you add that this problem was exacerbated by the deep tensions running between the PLO in Tunis and the Palestinians from the occupied territories, many of them veteran leaders of the Intifada, this is the first Intifada, who were the official members of the delegation. My question is how much significance would you attribute to this tension? Or is it really tension or more likely competition to the, between the, the, the two sides to the outcome of the negotiations? How much would you attribute that to the outcome of the negotiations? Let, let me give the listeners a little background to this because uh, Raja and I were both advisors to the Palestinian delegation at the Madrid Peace Conference and the subsequent 10 rounds of negotiations in Washington uh, between October uh, of 1991 and June of 1993. I think you left before that, actually. You left before that. A little bit before that. Um, and in, the con in that context, we put together a proposal, we, the delegation and the advisors, um, which called the Palestinian Palestinian interim self-governing arrangement, which stayed under the ceiling imposed by Israel and the United States on what we could put forward, but tried to push that ceiling up. Uh, what we were trying to do was to get me a measure of sovereignty, a, a recognition through our demand for jurisdiction over the entirety of the occupied territories that ultimately we would be the sovereign. Uh, we were not allowed to ask for statehood. We were not allowed to ask for sovereignty. The ground rules imposed by Baker and which were dictated by the Israelis, uh, uh, precluded uh, that or discussion of water or discussion of settlements or discussion of Jerusalem or discussion of anything important. But through this proposal, what we were trying to do was to do an end run and to establish the basis for a sovereign Palestinian state. We failed. We failed mainly as, as Reja suggested I said, uh, because Israel wasn't under any circumstances willing to admit of anything that would, that would take the Palestinians towards sovereignty and self-determination. That was not on the cards. That was neither accepted by the Shamir government nor by the Rabin government. And I quote Rabin's last speech where he says uh, things along those lines, his last speech before he's murdered, before he's assassinated. But the other obstacle was the PLO in Tunis. And I think that what was going on there was not actually competition. What was going on there was the jealousy of the PLO leadership of any potential rival. I don't think any leader in the occupied territories saw themselves as competing with Tunis. I don't think any Palestinian in Washington thought of anybody but the PLO as the representative of the Palestinian people. And they kept saying that. Pardon and me? They often, and they often repeated that. But they actually believed it. I don't think it was just empty words. I honestly believe that Tunis had, and specifically Yasser Arafat himself, had an almost paranoid fear of rival leaderships. Now, there were reasons for this. One of them, a, a, a very good reason, was that Arab governments for going back to King Abdullah have been trying to take away uh, 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 control over Palestinian politics from the Palestinians. That's what Abdullah's wasaya, his protectorship uh, that, that my father's message was meant to re reject uh, involved. And that's what Arab governments have tried to do again and again and again. And these, these, these alternative leaderships sponsored by Arab governments were, were like uh, astroturf, they were fake. They, they had no reality to them, but they were meant to rival uh, the, the, the genuine indigenous PLO leadership. And Arafat was worried about that, genuinely and reasonably worried. He was also worried because Hamas had just, had just arisen in 1987 and was a rival to the PLO. Finally, he was worried because the leadership of the Intifada initially had been local and had been very successful. In fact, had been much more successful in putting the Palestine case to the world than had been the PLO for a very long time. So he was jealous of them. And I think he was worried about competition from them, even though that was the, the last thing in the minds of people uh, like Mamdouh Akir and Hanan Ashrawi and, and, and the entire delegation in, in Washington. Um, 
So I, I think that what that led to was an unwillingness on the part of the Tunis leadership to push this proposal and to push uh, what the delegation was trying to do as hard as they should and could have done. I don't think they fully understood what we were what we put forward. I don't think they understood what we were trying to do, even though people went to Tunis to explain it to them. Um, and I think that they were also in a hurry. They were in a hurry because they realized they had worn out their welcome in the Arab countries to which they had been exiled after they were forced to leave Beirut in 1982. They had worn out their welcome and they were desperate to get a deal with Israel that would allow them to return to the occupied territories. Um, and so when they saw the Israelis dig in their heels in the face of our proposal, instead of pushing harder, uh, they finally decided to do an, their own end run, which ended up in Oslo, uh, behind our backs without our knowledge. Well, last two questions. I have always wondered about the role of the individual in individuals in determining the future of nations. And your book highlights the role of several crucial personalities in the 100 years war on Palestine. Uh, let's take Balfour, Hajj Amin, uh, Husseini, Rabin, Arafat, to mention but a few. How significant has the role been? Would the outcome have been any different had they not been around? It's a difficult that's, question, but it's a really hard question. I thought about that a lot after you sent it to me, um, because it could have been different. Yes, I, I think I think I think things could have been different. I think that both Hajj Amin uh, and Yasser Arafat uh, had enormous talents and capabilities, but they had enormous blind spots and weaknesses. Hajj Amin had no understanding of the global situation. I mean, anybody who aligned himself with Germany uh, in 1940-41, for reasons that can be explained, but were in, in the end quite foolish, uh, clearly didn't understand the global balance. Somebody like Yasser Arafat, who could not understand the importance of work inside the United States, clearly was lacking a certain kind of strategic vision. For all of his talent at playing Arab politics, for all of his talent and in third world diplomacy, Arafat was very adept at that. Um, he had an enormous blind spot where the United States was concerned. He thought that if he could, if the PLO could just get into negotiations with Schultz or Baker or whatever, everything could be resolved, which was a foolish mistake. It was naive, uh, it was ignorant. So I think those personalities play a role. I mean, I could talk about Balfour. Uh, Balfour was important, but I think Britain, frankly, uh, uh, was, was, would have sought its strategic interests if somebody else had been foreign secretary uh, and would have done something similar to what it did. Uh, I think there are a few personalities who really were crucial uh, on the Zionist side. I think Ben-Gurion was probably one of the most crucial leaders in modern Middle East history. Like Ibn Saud, like a couple of other people, they, they as individuals made an enormous difference. The Zionist movement, it was sort of overdetermined given the external support that it had achieved, that it would succeed up to a point. Uh, uh, there are other things that were likely to happen, but they happened as they happened, partly because of the skill of, 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 of Ben-Gurion. And I think that you could say the same thing about some of the successes of the PLO. Uh, Arafat's ability uh, to play on inter-Arab politics, his ability uh, to understand how to run Palestinian politics in the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s were enormously important to the successes of the PLO, just as his flaws were enormously important to the to the failures of the PLO. So yeah, I think the personality plays a role. But on the other hand, I think Palestinian nationalism was going to be revived in the 50s and 60s, irrespective of Yasser Arafat. And he was not alone. I mean, he he had people in other organizations like George Habash. He had leaders who were his co-equals, like Salah Khanaf, Abu Iyad, like Abu Jihad, Khalil Wazir, uh, without whom uh, the, the, the successes of the PLO, but also the failures would not have necessarily come out as they came out. So I'm, I'm giving you an equivocal answer here. No, person. no, no, it's, it's a good answer because you, you're agreeing that individuals play a, a, a crucial role, but at the same time, uh, we, we have what we have. There are historical forces at work. Well, the last question. Your prognosis for the future is rather dim because of the international configuration. How do you think this might be changing now that the post-corona lockdown will be leading to an economic depression and the possible demise of Saudi Arabia due to the drop 
in oil prices? I'll say two things. The first is that the this crisis um, is maybe going to maybe I I, I don't uh, I can't predict the future. I don't know what's going to happen, but maybe maybe this crisis may well accelerate a process that was already underway, which is a, a, a global shift from absolute unipolar predominance by the United States to a slightly less unipolar global system. The United States before Trump, before Corona, was already nowhere near as powerful as it had been from 1945 right up through the 80s and early 90s. Um, things are changing in terms of the global balance of power, the global balance of economic power. Uh, which way we're going, I don't know. Will it be a more multipolar world? Will the United States and China go into a, a bipolar relationship like the United States and the Soviet Union were in during the Cold War? I don't know. But that change is already underway. And I think that this pandemic has increased it. The, the damage that this administration has done to the United States um, has severely harmed the standing of the United States in the world. Now, how that will affect Palestine, I don't know. But I want to say one other thing, which is I think that the hegemony that Saudi Arabia has achieved, the veiled hegemony that Saudi Arabia has enjoyed essentially since 1967, essentially since sometime between the 67 war, the Yemen war, the 67 war, and the rise in oil prices in the early 70s. Since that period, Saudi Arabia has been the Arab hegemon in a veiled way behind the scenes. I think that that era might well be over. It might be over not just because of Corona, not just because of the collapse in oil prices, but for structural reasons. Uh, partly because of the incredible current of demand for democracy in, in the Arab world. Uh, 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 Saudi Arabia and the Emirates are the St. Petersburg and the Vienna of the 1848 revolution. They are the capitals of reaction, anti-democratic sentiment, and a belief in autocracy and in suppressing people. And they have been fighting tooth and nail since 2011 to prevent popular democracy in the Arab world. And that has, that has bubbled up yet again after it was suppressed after 2011. It's bubbled up yet again. Sudan, Algeria, Lebanon, Iraq. It's going to bubble up again. And the, the collapse in oil prices and this pandemic uh, might accelerate that process. But that's an inevitable process. And that will have an effect on Palestine. How soon, what effect, I can't say. Well, thank you. This is a wonderful answer and wonderful uh conversation. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Apologies. Thank you both for this. Uh, we have a few minutes um, for a Q&A. We received a bunch of questions via email and through Zoom. Uh, so I'll just dive right in. Um, Israel has conceived of a solution to what's called the demographic problem to attach Palestinian cities within pre-67 Israel to parts of the West Bank. Can you speak about this? Mm. I mean, I'd, I'd actually like to hear Raja speak about this from a legal point of view. Um, I'm not sure that that will ever happen. Uh, first of all, you're going to have the objection of uh, people in Um al-Faham and all the other areas that Israel would like to transfer out of Israel. Uh, secondly, you're going to have the, the objection internationally, which I don't know will necessarily be a strong reaction. But this, is a, this would be a remarkable thing that Israel would be trying to do. Now, they've gotten away with murder again and again and again. So to say that there will be an international reaction doesn't necessarily mean that that would stop them. Um, but I actually don't think that that's going to be possible myself. What do you, what do you think, Raja? I don't think that it's going to be possible. It's wish, wishful thinking at best, because obviously the Palestinians in, in Israel are uh, tied up to all kinds of uh, laws and uh, resources and benefits and and they they will not give these up uh, and and so even though they they have aspirations for for self-determination so on they will not exchange that for just a simple joining of other cities on the other side right. so it's which which was thinking i think especially given the the miserable situation in which israel has placed the occupied territories uh, for the past 50 odd years. I mean, who would want to join 
Palestinians living under occupation, which is what Israel is basically telling them to do. You will go from being citizens with limited rights, uh, suffering from discrimination, to being people with absolutely no rights absolutely. under under the jackboot of military occupation. I mean, it's inconceivable. Inconceivable. I agree. And Maria, a question specific to your book. Um, doesn't King Abdullah's response to your father's rejection of the offer also imply that there was already a division plan in place that he knew of and agreed to in advance, which gives Israel control of 78% of Palestine, leaving the West Bank and Jerusalem to him once the British troops leave? Um, in fact, that's the case. Uh, if you have a chance, if the questioner has a chance to read the book, um, the negotiations that I mentioned earlier between Amir Abdullah, Moshe Sharet, and Golda Meir were about just such a partition. Uh, they knew uh, that uh, the, the uh, majority report, uh, which ultimately became the partition plan that was voted on by the General Assembly of the United Nations on November 29, 1947, would have given, uh, at that stage, about 55% of Palestine to a Jewish state and the rest uh, either to a corpus separatum around Jerusalem or to an Arab state. And what he, has, what he was trying to agree with the Israelis or with the Jewish agency at the time was that he take over most of those areas that were to have been allotted to the Arab state, which the Jewish agency was, was basically willing to concede, though they didn't agree on Jerusalem. Um, so yes, the questioner is basically right. Yes, Abdullah did know that a partition was coming. Uh, he didn't know that it would be that that that, that it would that it would win when it did in the general assembly, uh, but he had been he was he had been informed not only by the Israelis but by his British patrons uh, that that was coming. And a question a little bit closer to um, U.S. politics, and please, Reja, feel free to also comment. Uh, when the White House released its Middle East peace plan, Jared Kushner responded to Palestinian resistance to the plan by warning that the Palestinians would be passing up the opportunity of a lifetime if they rejected the deal. Kushner then said, in reference to the Palestinians, if they don't accept the deal, they are going to screw up another opportunity like they've screwed up every other opportunity that they have ever had in their existence. What are your reaction to Kushner's response? Well, um, I would normally not um, respond to someone who is as clueless and as ignorant and as incompetent as Kushner has shown him to be in every area in which he's ever tried his hand, from nearly bankrupting his family real estate company to his miserable response to the opioid crisis, to his miserable response to the pandemic, to his miserable peace plan. Um, but that is not even Kushner's own line. He's borrowing a line from Abba Iba. Uh, the Palestinians have never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Uh, so he can't even make up his own uh, uh, bon mot. Uh, and uh, all I would say is that uh, this is no more of an opportunity, in my view, than was the Oslo, than were the Oslo Accords, or than was the Partition Plan of 1947. Uh, these are these were agreements designed to establish things for Israel at the expense of the Palestinians, and Palestinian acceptance of them. In, in fact, the Palestinians accepted the Oslo Accords, and look where we are today. Um, Palestinian acceptance of them would only have accelerated a process designed solely to benefit Israel, in which the Palestinians are an afterthought. I mean, this goes back to Reza's question earlier on. Uh, the Palestinians are basically not considered to be worthy of being treated as an equal party, either by Israel or by the United States. This has always been the case. This is the case with the British. Uh, Br the British would meet with the Zionists who had been given by the terms of the mandate standing and authority. And they had to meet with them. And they met with them on a basis of equality. You are a party, we are a party. Every time a British minister would meet with Palestinian leaders, even Palestinian leaders who had a vote behind them in the 20s and the 30s, they would say, we are meeting with you in a personal capacity. You, you represent nobody and you are nothing. You don't exist, is what the British were saying. And that's what the Balfour Declaration said. That's what the mandate says. The name, the Palestinians, doesn't exist in the mandate for Palestine, nor does it exist in the Balfour Declaration. Uh, so th that is what, that, nor does it exist in Security Council Resolution 242. That's what the great powers have always, that's how the great powers have mainly operated. Uh, not always, but mainly. And that's how Zionism has mainly operated. And one question related to the one state solution. Um, in late of the recent Trump deal and the West Bank annexation, what are the prospects for one, two, or 
really any solution. I mean, again, I'm, I'm no more qualified to, to prognosticate about the future than anybody in the audience or anybody else. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I can say that where we are today on the basis of my reading of the history is that we are in a one state status quo. There is one state in Palestine. There will be for the foreseeable future, one state in Palestine. That will be the state of Israel. This, the only sovereignty, the only security authority, the only control over everything of importance will be in the hands of the Israeli government. Uh, that's going to be the status quo for the for the foreseeable future. Will that evolve in some way? Will Israel be, as it were, decolonized? Will Israel give up the occupied territories and make possible the creation of a Palestinian state? Neither of those is likely to happen very easily or very quickly. Uh, I, I myself think that we're probably in a one state status quo for the indefinite future and that we're going to have to figure out how to, as it were, decolonize Israel and achieve self-determination uh, in a way uh, that does not involve another partition. I, I think that in one respect, Israel has done itself a terrible disservice through its colonization of the, of the West Bank uh, and East Jerusalem, in that it is incorporated in an inextricable way into its body, a, a Palestinian majority. And that is completely incompatible with any pretense at democracy. So to be an ethnocracy, which is uh, uh, ethnically unequal, and which is legally discriminatory, is what the Israelis have created, is the status quo the Israelis have created. And that's not sustainable in the 21st century, in my view. Now, the world may move away from liberal democracy, in which case they might get away with it. I don't think that's going to happen. And I certainly don't think that, the, that the, the two core metropoles upon which Israel depends and has really always depended, the United States and, and, and Europe, uh, are going to cease to be liberal democracies. And those 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 two patrons sooner or later are going to see the contradiction between what Israel really is uh, and between what it claims to be. And th th then there's a moment of reckoning. And that's an opportunity for the Palestinians, which the Palestinians have to obviously be able to take. And maybe just one last question before we end. Um, and this is to both of you as well. To what extent can you see support uh, of BDS as an effective mechanism in American civil society? I think BDS has been an enormously important lever in opening up the conversation. I think it's it's it has its own power in it as as a, as a set of arguments, but it has worked especially in the United States not so much to actually boycott or to sanction or to lead to divestment, but to force an opening of a conversation that was closed. Zionism has succeeded by shutting us out, by saying they don't exist, they have no arguments. What BDS has done is to push the basic issues, whether it's occupation, whether it's the racism of the Israeli state towards its Palestinian citizens, or whether it's uh, the, the, the refugee issue and the expulsion of Palestinians during the Nakba, to force those onto the, onto the table and, and, and force people to confront them. And that's why the response to BDS has been so ferocious. That's why tens and tens of millions of dollars are being spent. Hundreds of lawyers are being employed to, to fight BDS. There's a ministry in Israel, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, one of its primary objectives is fighting BDS. There are whole organizations in the United States, huge, huge organizations devoted to fighting BDS and, and in Europe, and some of them with links to Israel. That's a sign of how successful this grassroots movement with almost no financial support, uh, no ex almost no external, no external support has been in uh, uh, questioning things that Israel does not, Israel and its supporters do not want to have questioned on all of those levels, the level of occupation, the level of internal discrimination and racism inside Israel and the level of, of the question of refugees uh, and Nakba. Uh, so I think it's been enormously successful, but it's a lever, it's a tool rather than an end in and of itself. All right, Mr. Shah, did you want to add anything? I, I fully agree. I don't have anything more to say. I think, the, the, the well put, uh, Rashid, that it is a lever and that it has done something already by opening up the discussion. Well, thank you so much uh, to the both of you for joining us uh, on this webinar today. Um, as I have enjoyed the talk, I'm sure uh, the, the hundreds of others who have joined us to watch your talk have enjoyed it as well. Um, 
just to, to reiterate, uh, this will be uh, recorded and sent to you by email uh, to all those who have attended. It is also available on our Facebook page uh, to be rewatched if you are interested or to send to your friends. Um, again, thank you so much for joining us um, and have a nice day or evening. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. And Ramadan Karim to all of those who are uh, celebrating uh, and will soon be celebrating their Eid. Thanks to SOAS, which is our co-sponsor in this. Thanks, of course, to the IPS. Thanks especially to Laura and Tereja uh, uh, for this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks.